Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. It's your host, Olivia Perez. I'm a journalist, interviewer, and the host of Friend of a Friend, a show where I sit down with some of my friends, your friends, and new friends to host inspiring but down-to-earth conversations with some of my favorite luminaries who are making good change. Today, we are joined by Nithya Raman. She's an urban planner, activist, and Los Angeles council member for the 4th District. Nithya was born in India and moved to the U.S. as a child, where she later went on to study at Harvard and get her master's degree in urban planning at MIT. Very casual. She ran for office for the first time at 38 years old with no prior political experience, passionate about solving L.A.'s homelessness crisis. She beat the incumbent and received the most votes of any L.A. council member ever, running a grassroots door-to-door campaign that galvanized Angelinos to get involved in local elections. I hope you guys love this episode. I'm so honored to have Nithya on. She is such a wealth of knowledge and an incredible resource for any of you listening right now who are interested in getting involved in local politics and want to make a change and a difference in your community. She did talk about a few places, if you guys are LA residents who are listening, where you can give back and donate time. I've added them to the description of this episode. If you haven't subscribed to the show and you find yourself coming back every week and listening, take the time to subscribe. And if you love the show, share it with a friend. I love seeing when you guys are listening. So take a screenshot when you do and tag me. I'm at Liv Perez on Instagram. And you guys know I always reshare as you're listening. Here's my friend, Nithya Raman. So where are you phoning in from? From my home in Silver Lake. Amazing. How long have you lived there? I lived here since 2014. It's beautiful over there. I've always thought that that's like just such a like underrated spot of Los Angeles, to be honest. Oh, really? Yeah. I feel like, I mean... I know that there's like been a big shift in people moving there, but I still think that it's like people think it's too far east. I remember when we had a a baby shower when I was pregnant with my twins and we had we had invited a whole range of guests, including people both my husband and I had worked with and a lot of older folks who were more established. My husband works in the entertainment industry, people who had been established in the entertainment industry for many, many years. And all of them lived on the West side. And one, I remember one woman stepping into the home and she said, so this neighborhood is called Silver Lake. <laughs> yep. I was like, yes. Yep. Maybe <laughs> unwelcome. Well, un- <laughs> yeah. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your upbringing because what is so interesting to me about you that I love is that you weren't really working in politics before you went into the campaign. And I think for me, that was so inspiring because you had obviously seen 
a need and you were like up and ready to fill it. So I'd love to hear a, li a little bit about your childhood. You emigrated to the U.S. as a child. Do you have any memories as a kid of what that experience was like? Yeah, I actually remember getting off the plane. We flew Pan Am wow. Airlines. Yeah. Which doesn't exist anymore. And I remember getting off the plane. We flew into Newark Airport. And I remember getting off and I remember thinking, oh, this country smells different. Wow. You know, it was just like a very visceral sense of what it felt like to get off the plane and to step into this new place, which ended up being my home. I have some memories from that early period, which for a some strange reason really stay in my brain. One of the funniest ones is that the first home we went to was my uncle and aunt's home. They they picked us up from the airport and brought my mother and I to their home to stay with them for a few days until my father, who was living elsewhere, could come and pick us up. And I remember they had a covered, like a cake tray or a bread tray in their home with a glass cover on it. And they had put these croissants in it. And in India at that time, there weren't the cafe culture wasn't as strong yet. And so I had never seen bread shaped in that shape before. Wow. And I was also a kid, you know, so right. I saw a croissant and I was like, what is this? Oh, I hope you took like a big bite and were like, this is okay. I get what this is now. Yeah, it was. I mean, obviously it was delicious and I still love croissants. But yeah, I think it was my first memory of really seeing croissants, which is <laughs> really cute. funny because it's not even an American at all. baked good. At yeah. all. <laughs> I love that you said that, you know, there was a distinctive smell. I feel like smells always invoke the most incredible memories for me. Yeah, absolutely. And actually now when I go back to India, one of the first things I notice every time I get off the plane is the smell and also the way the weather is so much more the heat there is like something physical, yes. you know, it's so powerful and the humidity is so powerful that there's just getting out of the plane is such an intense moment, I think. What was your family dynamic like as a kid? I was an only child for a long time. I have a younger brother, but he's much younger than me. So he wasn't born until I was well into high school. And so for a long time, and I think for me personally, being an immigrant moving to the U.S., it was a very interesting experience because both my parents and I navigated the transition into a new country together, right? So for a lot right. of immigrants, especially first-generation um, kids, I think they have a very different experience from their parents because they are born as Americans and their parents are, you know, hyphenated Americans or are, are, are newer to the country. And so there's a little bit of a distance from the experience of their parents and I had both sides of it right. because I, I immigrated with them. I experienced the newness of coming into this place, the transition of trying to make our way in this, in this place together. But then because children acclimate more quickly to everything, I very quickly acclimated, changed my accent, spoke in American slang, um, spoke more English than Tamil, which is the language we speak in my, in, you know, in my home then was alienated from them, you know, in that same way. So it was interesting to be on both sides of it and to really experience the process of immigrating in a very, you know, in I think in a very interesting way. But because I was an only child, I often felt really isolated in my own home. You know, I spent a lot of time by myself. Both of my parents worked and I was a latchkey kid. So I let myself in at the end of the day. And because I was new and we moved a bit when I was young, I often didn't have a lot of friends. So I spent a lot of my 
young childhood kind of alone and dreaming of what I could do in America as an adult. But I think, you know, it formed me into the person I am today. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy for that experience, even though I probably was much lonelier than most other children at that age. That must have been a really tricky situation to navigate identity as a young kid. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think now we're in a moment where young people celebrate difference. Yes. And celebrate racial differences and celebrate being part of culture, celebrate, you know, even just food. Right now there is not just a acceptance of different kinds of food, but like in a city like Los Angeles, you go hunt down yes. the most authentic version of whatever food you're trying to eat from, you know, it's not just Thai food, but it's Thai food from a particular region of Thailand, you know, and and you do that with every culture that has made its home here in Los Angeles. When I was growing up, you know, it was strange because I was embarrassed of my food. I was embarrassed of the food I would bring to school for lunch. I was embarrassed of the smell in my clothing. I grew up on the East Coast and woolen clothing absorbs smells. Right. And my clothing smelled really strongly of spices because that was what my mom would cook with. And I remember at school kind of smelling my cl- my coat or my scarves and being really embarrassed of what I had brought from my home into the school environment. And um, I think nowadays, my hope is that my children will never feel that kind of shame. And I feel like I look around and I see a culture here in Los Angeles that really celebrates difference and celebrates cultural specificity in a way that I'm so happy has emerged since I was a kid. I love that. We'll be right back after a quick break. Okay. So how many of you woke up on January 1st and vowed to eat healthier or switch something up in your routine to make you feel better? This year, turn your resolutions into reality. Whether you're looking to try plant-based eating, build an empowered body, boost skin's glow, or simply just feel your very best, Sakara makes it easy to create rituals that last. Sakara is a company rooted in the transformative power of plant-based foods. Their organic, ready-to-eat meals are made with powerful, plant-rich ingredients, and they're designed to boost your energy, improve digestion, and get your skin glowing. Their menu of creative, chef-crafted breakfasts, lunch, and dinners change weekly, so you'll never get bored. We're talking meals like five-herb pesto pasta and a pumpkin pie parfait, delivered, ready to go, no prep necessary, every single week. And it's delivered fresh anywhere in the U.S., Along with delicious plant-rich meals, Sakara also offers daily wellness essentials for optimal nutrition. Sakara supplement packs called the Foundation and their Metabolism Super Powder deliver support for gut health, energy, immunity, and healthy skin. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com friend or enter the code friend at checkout, S-A-K-A-R-A.com slash friend to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash friend. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. And I'm Andana Dayani. We decided to create a podcast to introduce you to the people who inspire us most. These are the dissenters, the people who just made a decision one day to break down the establishment and build a new one. In the greatest times of grief or even the most ordinary of circumstances, many heroes will rise. You just have to take that first step. So please tune in. We can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts. There are heroes everywhere. Discover them. Become one. Do 
you remember a distinctive moment in your upbringing where you had any inclination or passion for politics? While I think it's too simplistic to say that if you see it, you can be it. I really didn't see it. Right. right? And so for me, the idea that I could be a leader, that I would be somebody that people took time to volunteer for, that I would be somebody that people wanted to vote for, that, that wasn't really in my imagination for what I wanted for myself or what I, what I desired for myself when I became an adult. And even as an adult, it took me many, many years to step up and to say that I wanted to do this. I chose to run at the age of 38. It took me 38 years to find my voice and to find my ability to take my place in, in a leadership role in, in politics. But I do think that the more women that step into it, the more women of color, the more young people that step into it, I think that most people won't feel the kinds of hesitations that I did. And I think the more that we break those barriers, the better it becomes for that kind of feeling. It's really nice to see people stepping up right now and breaking down that typical vision of what a quote unquote politician is and actually kind of lifting the veil and being very transparent about the work they're doing and welcoming people into it. So as you were answering that question, I was like, you know, maybe it wasn't a political thing as a kid, but a helping people thing probably was there to an extent. Yes, absolutely. A helping people thing was definitely there. The social justice work or the social justice focus in my life has always been there. Right. And even as a kid, I think I volunteered. I, I joined organizations and led organizations in high school that were focused on volunteerism and civic engagement. I don't think I was always doing the exact right thing. You know, I was really finding my way in terms of where I could help. but that was really deeply ingrained in me. And I think that one of the things that I think is most important about Los Angeles right now, and what I would love to see more of, is that people see that kind of volunteerism and that kind of civic engagement. It's not just something that you do for school credit or right. for being on your college resume before you apply or something like that, but that families do it together, that it becomes a part of how you engage with the city, that it is a part of being a resident of Los Angeles is that you also give back to Los Angeles. And I would love to make that easier for people. Cause I think right now it's a little bit hard to know what to do, how to get involved. How can you, you know, if you have kids, where can you bring your kids? Where is it appropriate? And one of the things I'm really excited about is as we move forward in, in this new office is making those opportunities available for people. Definitely. So I think instinctually people want to give back. I think they just need a little bit of, of help guiding to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that, you know, in some ways, the fact that the economy was doing so well before Trump was elected, the fact that a lot of people felt like, okay, things are fine. They don't need me. Right. You know, now that feeling has changed. There's this real sense of if I don't take part in my local government, if I don't vote, if I don't volunteer, that things won't get better. And while I worry about the loss of faith that people have in government's ability to do good work, I do think that the need for people to be engaged, that desire for people to be engaged, that sense of fulfillment that people get from participating in, in 
you know, whether it's volunteerism or whether it's local politics, I think that is an incredibly important thing uh, to capture and to maintain going forward. I'm curious to hear if you feel that faith is restored a little bit more now. Has it been restored for you? Do you feel like we're, you know, that we... I think when you... I think everybody went through definitely a collective trauma in a way, and I think you can't forget that. I don't think that that's something that you can just, you know, see think the wheel spinning again in a good way on TV or the news or whatever, however you get your news. I just don't think that you forget those experiences. And I think everybody is, at least in my experience, I feel a little weary of everything now. I'd like to say that I'm hopeful, but I don't know if my full faith has been restored because of the experience that we just went through. I think I'm going to need a little bit more building of the bridge. Yeah. And I I think that that's right. I always like to think about this over a longer time horizon. And I think that's what has given me more faith. So I look at the response from our government, even during the Trump administration, you know, but so much more so now with this new stimulus bill that Um, you know, I think is moving forward. And I look at the difference between our response to the recession from the last big recession and now, and I look at how much more money has been put towards payments directly to individuals, to small businesses. Whereas in the earlier recession, they really focused on saving big businesses and let people suffer with really devastating consequences for America. And I think To me, that's a lesson that we learned, and that's a lesson that activists and organizers made sure that we spread to everybody. And so now, even those who are at the highest echelons of government, I think, are taking that lesson to heart. And to me, I see that as a win. Yes. And I really see it as a a place from which we can draw a lot of hope. I'm not saying everything has gone right. Obviously, things have not gone as far as they need to. They obviously the response to COVID could have been so much more effective. And I think even now with the vaccine rollout can get a lot better. But I do see that there are really important places that we can draw our hope from for the future. So I I feel a lot of, yeah, I, I feel a lot of my faith has been has been restored. And I'm excited to now be in a position where hopefully I can keep up that restoration, you know, at the local level too. We'll be right back after a quick break. Did any of you do dry January this year? If so, I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that after the first time I did it, I didn't want to stop. No hangovers, no brain fog, and honestly, I love a good non-alcoholic drink. My favorite is Kin Euphorics, the first non-alcoholic drink for grown-ups who care about the little things like brain function, hormone harmony, and de-stressing after an insane day. Kin Euphorics are stacked with the good stuff and none of the bad. Think adaptogenic herbs and mushrooms that can help curb stress in the moment and over time, as well as nootropics that support cognitive function like clarity, memory, and creativity. Plus, it's a brand built by women for women, which is something I know this community always loves to support. We worked out a special deal for friend of a friend listeners. Receive 15% off plus free shipping on your order. And if you're ordering for your first time, trust me, order the high road. It's a calming flavor that goes great with the soda and lime after a long day of quarantine. It's my favorite. Go to kinuforex.com backslash Olivia or use code Olivia at checkout to claim the deal. That's K-I-N-E-U-P-H-O-R-I-C-S.com slash Olivia. You ran for LA City Council in 2019 and you were talking about, you were talking a little earlier about how 
you know, you had to have this, you had this change of heart and how you came to find your voice and you were ready to, to run. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what that moment was like for you, whether if it was, you know, a, a aha moment or if it was something that happened gradually over time. I think the thing that had been building for a long time was my sense of frustration. So I had been working as a, I worked for the city on homelessness briefly uh, many years ago, not so many, but in 2014. And then I left the city and started working on homelessness in my own neighborhood. And a group of volunteers and I got together. We started going out and doing homeless outreach on the weekends. Every every weekend, Saturday morning, we would meet up with bottles of water and, and breakfast bars and just walk from encampment to encampment in our neighborhood. And as we got to know people, as we started to understand the obstacles that faced people as they tried to exit homelessness, as they tried to find a home, as they tried to find resources, I started to realize more and more that some of the biggest obstacles to solving our homelessness crisis here in Los Angeles was our local elected government. And as we asked for simple things and bigger things, often we would we would be up against not just, you know, because in Los Angeles, it's a little bit harder to pinpoint sometimes the problem because a lot of politicians, we live in a very progressive city. And so a lot of the politicians say the same things. They use the same language to talk about these issues. But I think the thing that bothered me the most was really the lack of urgency that I felt in responding to this crisis, right? So you would say the right things. You would say, we want to respond with compassion. We want to respond with care. We want to respond with services. But there seemed to be no follow-up on those responses. There seemed to be no pushing the system, the, the nonprofit providers, the government agencies to be accountable to outcomes that are better for all residents, but particularly for residents experiencing homelessness, I just didn't see that urgency reflected in the response that I saw. And so I think that frustration for me grew over time. And then in this particular election, so this was a really big election for the city of Los Angeles because we changed our election timings. For the first time, our local elections and our federal elections overlapped. And so the thing that really pushed me to run and the thing that pushed me to really think about it seriously was this opportunity to get a lot more voters involved in that local election because they would be there at the polls voting for their presidential primary candidate or voting for uh, for president in November. And I saw an opportunity to say, hey, voting has been a very limited affair so far. Let's get people excited about the possibility for change. Let's get people excited about going to the polls. Uh, let's get people excited. They just had to look down ballot. You know, right. They didn't even have to do anything extra. I saw an opportunity to get people really, really involved in, in those issues at the local level. And I think that's what really pushed me to think about running seriously because I saw this opportunity and I was like, well, who's taking advantage of it? And I didn't see anybody else. So then I decided that maybe it was, you know, an opportunity for me. What do you think is the key reason of why people don't show up for local elections? I think that a lot of local officials have trouble making the case for why their work is important. I think that they have trouble articulating to residents why you should be caring about what they're doing. But here in Los Angeles, because of our homelessness crisis, 
that case isn't so hard to make anymore. Right. Because the impacts of their work are visible for us on the streets every single day, or they're visible for us in our daily lives. When, if you're a family that's facing housing insecurity, if you're a family that's facing rising rents and the lack of affordable housing, you feel that viscerally in your own life. And so I think the housing and homelessness crisis has made it real for people in a way that I think hasn't been as urgent in the past. I, I do think that the, the, the protests against the murder of George Floyd last year also helped people make those connections much more strongly. I think that people were on the streets and they were looking at, at the issue of police violence and police brutality. And they said, who's making the decisions that are leading to this horror? Who's making the decisions around budgets? Who's making the decisions around the lack of accountability? And all lines point to local government. And so I think that also really helped people make those connections in ways that they hadn't necessarily made those connections before. And for me in my campaign, because I started the first part of my campaign before the pandemic and before the uprising. And so in the first part of my campaign, I remember a lot of work that we did in the campaign was to try and make it relevant for people in their own lives. And in the second part of the campaign, after the protests, I didn't have to do that work anymore. I just had to convince people that I was the person who could take action on the values that they were expressing in these protests. You've come into a job at a pretty tough time now that I'm thinking about it. Because <laughs> hearing, hearing you earlier talk about, you know, wanting to run and having a first part of the campaign and then a totally different half, I wonder how it's been. How's the new job in such a hectic time, honestly? Well, it's been hard. It's been really hard. When I took office, my first day was December 14th. And that was like right after, right when the Thanksgiving surge, post-Thanksgiving yeah. was happening in LA. December was scary in LA. It still it is, scary. but December was particularly chilling. It was really, really terrifying. And that was my first, you know, my first couple of weeks was in that period. We send our children to a preschool. The preschool was shut down. It continues to be shut down actually. And so we didn't have any childcare support. My husband was starting a new job. I was starting a new job. So on a very personal level, it just was a very intense moment of work and of kind of challenges in terms of how much we had to take on as a household. On a professional level, not only was I coming into office at a time when I think the pandemic was at its worst, but it was also at a time when our local city government is facing a huge budget shortfall. They've spoken about so far about a $600 million budget shortfall, but some experts say that it could be as much as a billion dollars wow. that we don't have in our city budget. That's a huge percentage huge. of our budget. And so not only are we negotiating some of the biggest challenges that we've had as a city, but we're also negotiating those challenges at a time when we have the fewest resources available to take those challenges on. I appreciate you sharing both the personal and professional challenges in that because I think I know you're definitely not alone in, in those challenges and so many people, specifically women, are just dealing with having so much on their plate during this pandemic in terms of staying home and managing work. It's, it's such a big challenge. Yeah, 
it's, it's really, it's been really hard. Um, during the campaign, my parents were here and my in-laws were here. And so we had additional childcare support and I would not right. have been able to make it through without that. But, you know, now I've started this new job and have very limited resources to be able to take it on in terms of childcare support. Yeah, it's, it's a real thing. And I think those, you know, I don't know if you've seen those very stark numbers about job losses and how they've impacted uh, men and women very, very differently in, in our country. That inequity right there in and of itself is, is, is so tragic and such a horrible outcome of this pandemic. But I think it again points us to something that I, I think the pandemic has taught us many lessons. And I think the key going forward as we all get vaccinated, as we move into a place where we have more, you know, the economy comes back. I think what we need to do is remember to hold on to these lessons. And to me, this lesson, how childcare impacts the participation of women in the workforce. We saw it. We saw it illustrated so clearly in this period. And so now if we're looking at, oh, there's gender imbalances in politics, there are gender imbalances in this workplace, in that workplace, one of the best ways, one of the most effective ways that we can impact those gender imbalances, I think, is by pushing on having access to childcare universally. And we didn't talk about this much during the campaign because we were focused on housing and homelessness issues and some of the other policy priorities that that you know we were excited about but i do think that this is something that the city must take on and must think about what our role is in advancing this as a goal for for us i'd love to talk a little bit about what you were just saying being the key motive and kind of key thing that your campaign was run on which is homelessness i grew up in la um i was in new york for the past 9 years but I recently moved back because of COVID and it is very apparent to see the dramatic shift that has occurred, I would say in the last decade in the astronomical rise of homelessness in Los Angeles. I'd love to hear a little bit about from your perspective, what you think that is that has, that has propelled this to the place that it is at right now. I think a lot of issues have come together at the same time, which have led to this rise in homelessness for sure. But I think for me, the biggest explanatory factor is the rise in housing costs. We've seen a startling rise in housing costs in LA over the last decade. A statistic I used to quote on the campaign trail a lot is that rents rose by 65% over the last decade while renter incomes wow. barely budged during that time period, right? So you saw this massive increase in, in costs in the city. A lot of people ask me, well, what about the impact of mental illness? What about the impact of substance abuse? Those are very, very important factors. But to me, those are not explanatory variables for the rise in homelessness. I think what has happened is that when people who are struggling with any number of vulnerabilities, whether it be substance abuse, whether it be mental illness, whether it be uh, intimate partner violence. For people who had all of these different vulnerabilities in the past, I think the housing market was still a place where they could stay housed, right? If they had issues paying their rent, the market had enough give that they were able to stay in their home even through a rough period. At some point in Los Angeles, it got to the point where if you missed a payment, you were out. And once you were out, it was almost impossible to find another way back into a home because of how high the costs were, right? 
And once you're homeless, once you are living in your car, once you're living in an encampment, those are the worst places to manage any kind of vulnerability that you might have. Though that is not a place where you can really, you know, take on substance abuse and take on mental illness comfortably, safely, effectively. And so to me, the real explanatory variable is the rise in housing costs and the unwillingness in some ways of the city to step in and to make sure that people had stronger protections from things like evictions and landlord harassment. And so I think going forward, when we're looking at how do we respond to this crisis, I think we have to look at really protecting tenants more effectively. We have to look at increasing our, our access to affordable housing. We have to look at controlling better the costs that people are facing in their own housing, you know, that they're already living in. And so I think it, it really gives us a, a, a set of clear steps how, of how to respond. There's also an initiative called Project Room Key. And I've seen on Twitter recently, uh, uh, I think the other day I saw a tweet of some tiny homes popping up. What are some things that are making you hopeful about the situation right now? Yeah, let's talk about Project Room Key. So at the beginning of the pandemic, when people were wondering how we would respond to the threat that COVID posed to people experiencing homelessness, there was an awareness both at the federal government at the local level that we needed places for people to shelter that were what, what is known as non-congregate. That means not a shared shelter facility, right? So a lot of homeless shelters have 50, 100 people in them, a number of beds. At the same time, the travel market was completely decimated. Nobody was using hotels and motels. And so this provided a real opportunity for FEMA, the federal government's you know, emergency response agency, to step in and say, we will pay for people to be housed in hotels and motels uh, who are experiencing homelessness so that they can be in places which are non-congregate. That, that means they can be in a single unit for themselves, right? Unfortunately, FEMA at that point only reimbursed 75% of the project costs, right? And that reimbursement would come much later. For cities that are dependent on economic activity for their revenue, like the city of Los Angeles, this meant that this posed a real challenge. Even to cover 25% of hotel costs during a period when our finances are decimated, as I already discussed, is a real challenge. So one thing that gives me a lot of hope is that President Biden announced that FEMA would be doing 100% reimbursement for Project Room Key, which means that even as COVID rages on in Los Angeles, that we actually will be able to put more people into hotel rooms and motel rooms during this time than we were able to before. You brought up, obviously, the COVID crisis and how Los Angeles is literally the epicenter of it right now in the United States. How are you feeling about the way the city is handling the vaccine rollout and how we are responding to this moment? So the city is actually not responsible for the vaccine rollout. The vaccine is being distributed by the Department of Public Health, which is a county agency. I think the rollout of the vaccine has been problematic. <laughs> I think there have been real concerns around who has access, who is able to navigate a very clunky county website, who has been able to wait in line for hours to be able to get access to the vaccine. But I think a lot of the concerns around the local rollout have been exacerbated by, by the fact that 
we just don't have the number of vaccines that we need to be able to vaccinate everyone who wants to get vaccinated. And I think the challenges around the rollout are dwarfed by the fact that we just need more. We just need more shots. <laughs> right. You know, like and, that plain um, and simple. I think we can, yeah. And I think we can, we can do a lot better. And, and I think they're already the city and the county have, have shown their capacity to learn and change their vaccine rollout. I think there's still an incredible amount of room for improvement. I'm concerned about some of this changes at the state government that have uh, changed who gets, you know, access to the vaccine first. I still would you know, be very concerned about people who have um, additional vulnerabilities or people with disabilities who are now, I, I think they took them out of a priority category and now they've very quietly put them back. So it's it's hard, you know, I think there's a lot of decision-making that's happening that is not in line with what the data is telling us about who needs the vaccine the most, combined with some difficulties in communication. But I think the biggest challenge is that we just need more more vaccine, more of it, so much more of it for, for the state and for the county. If you and I were to fast forward 10 years from now, what's something that you would want to see different in Los Angeles? Oh my goodness. In 10 years, I hope that we've reduced our, our homeless population significantly. I know that we can make progress on this and I want to see a city that looks and feels really different from how it feels right now. More generally, I want to take a step back because one of the things that I'm really excited about in every way is for Angelinos to feel a real sense of pride in their city. Yeah. You know, I want people to feel joy in getting around it. I want people to look around and feel excited about living here. I love LA. I love living here. I love being here. I love raising my family here. It's so special to me. And I want to make sure that everybody who lives here feels that same sense of joy in, in this city. And I think there's different ways that we can get there. I think that will happen by connecting people more with their city, by connecting people more with their communities. I think that will happen by providing services more effectively, keeping streets clean, removing things like graffiti, trying to address our massive traffic problem, improving our public transit systems, cleaning our air. So I think there's lots of ways that we can get at it. But more broadly speaking, that's what I would love to see in Los Angeles is that residents feel really, really proud about living here. We always end the show with a couple lightning round questions that are fun. So whatever comes to the top okay. of your mind, what is your favorite place to eat in Los Angeles? I can tell you what I'm craving right now, which is Thai noodle soup from a place called Ruin Pear, which is in Thai town. Sounds so good right now. <laughs> we talked earlier about not always having the easiest resources to find a place to give back. What is your favorite place to give back right now if someone's listening wants to get online and spend a day giving back? Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be spending a day with the Hollywood Food Coalition, which is an incredible organization that is addressing one of LA's most pressing issues, which is food insecurity. So look up the Hollywood Food Coalition. Who is your favorite person to follow on Instagram? Oh, my goodness. There. <laughs> So what I do on Instagram, like at the end of the day to decompress is that I watch videos of street food vendors across the world. That's so cool. Yeah. And now my Instagram knows, the algorithm knows. So it just shows me more and more and more. So I watch it. I started watching the videos in India and now it's taken me all over the world. That's amazing. 
I'm someone listening right now who is passionate about making change in my government and I want to run for local office. What's the first thing I do? Well, I think you have to get informed. You have to figure out what are the things that motivate you the most about wanting to run? Like, what is the change you want to see most urgently in your locality? And find out which level of government impacts that issue. And then go run for that office. But I think getting informed about why you want to run will help you make the case to people that having you in office is going to result in the kinds of changes that your city or your locality really needs. What is the best piece of advice that a friend has ever given you? One time my friend said, if someone doesn't like you, it means they have bad taste. And that freed me a lot. (laughs) Amen. I love that. I think everyone needs to hear a little bit of that sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much again. It was really, really lovely getting to meet you. And I'm, I'm so excited that we have this episode and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Friend of a Friend. Before you go, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at tiermedia.com. And for more behind the scenes of the show, visit us at friendofafriend.us and follow me at Liv Perez on Instagram. Don't forget the two Vs. See you next week.